Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 4, Episode 7, Food Fight, the Surprisingly Contentious History of School Lunch. Okay, I know what you're thinking. What could possibly be more boring than a podcast episode about school lunch? Have you really run that short of ideas, David, in fewer than 60 episodes? Well, hang on to your styrofoam tray, my friend, and keep a hand on your tater tots, because the history and present state of school lunch is packed with all kinds of vitamins, minerals, and controversy. That sloppy joe sloshing around the steamer in your school will be eaten by one of almost 30 million students who buys lunch at her school every day, to the tune of over $14 billion in federal spending. Yes, federal spending, as reimbursement for school lunches is one of those few places in which federal funds actually directly impact what goes on inside the highly variegated 100,000-some-odd schools and 13,000-some-odd school districts across the United States. So how and why did that happen, and what's happening with it right now? In the earliest days of public schools in the United States, classes usually stop midday to give students the chance to go home and eat their lunch there. But as industrialization began concentrating Americans in cities, chances increased that there wouldn't be anyone at home during lunchtime to make meals for kids. Add to that low wages, brutal working conditions, lack of sanitation, and poor social support systems that resulted in widespread poverty and sickness, and, well, you can see some needs arising here. And so did charitable organizations like the Women's Educational and Industrial Union in Boston, which arose to try and support the most vulnerable including schoolchildren. Led by Dr. Harriet Clisby, an Australian-born Englishwoman who became one of the first female physicians in America, the WEIU, among its other social welfare activities, created in 1907 the nation's first hot lunch program for public schools in Boston, Massachusetts. So allow me yet another opportunity as a Boston-area resident to gloat about our first-in-the-nation status in education. This program was still serving up to 18,000 lunches a day in the mid-1940s. Okay, okay, backtrack. The Star Center Association Philadelphia had been providing penny lunches for nine public schools there since 1894. So maybe Boston wasn't the first lunch program of any kind, but I do believe it was the first hot lunch, which actually kind of matters, because in order to implement that, they needed a high-capacity central kitchen system which wound up being managed by the Boston School Committee. And you can see here the beginnings of an infrastructure more complex than just independent groups of charitable do-gooders coming with sandwiches, especially once some school teachers started using those lunches as a means to educate students about proper nutrition and healthy eating habits, as well as just a means of daily sustenance. In fact, this was the impetus behind many of the ad hoc volunteer school meal provision efforts that began cropping up all over the country, led by mothers' clubs and social reform groups that were often as interested in instilling cultural norms and assimilating immigrants as they were in just feeding impoverished children. As the famous French chef Briat Savaran wrote, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you who you are. By controlling what young people ate and how they ate it, These reformers sought to push children to abandon the traditions of their homelands and adopt the customs of white Anglo-Saxon America. As the 20th century unfolded and the locus of lunch shifted from the home to the school for more and more students, as culinary historian Jane Ziegelman writes, quote, calls to Americanize the foreign-born reverberated throughout government offices. 
the Board of Education looked at the school lunchroom to Americanize the immigrant palate, unquote. By 1912, over 40 cities in the United States had incorporated lunch programs of some sort. In Philadelphia, a school principal with the name, and I swear I cannot make this up, Dr. Cheeseman A. Herrick, had managed to get the Philadelphia School Board to establish a systematized set of nutritional guidelines for lunches, versions of which were adopted across the country. By 1917, a Philadelphia publication declared that, quote, in many of our large cities and industrial centers, the elementary school luncheon has long since passed the experimental stage and is regarded as a valuable part of the school training, as well as a safeguard for the health of the child. The expensive machinery of education is wasted when it operates on a mind listless from hunger or befogged by indigestible food. Whether the cause be poverty, ignorance, or carelessness, the child is the sufferer, and the painstaking work of the school lunch supervisors to secure wholesome and adequate noon meals for the school children at a minimum cost not only brings immediate benefit to the children, but exerts a widespread influence upon homes and parents, as the children carry to them reports of these concrete lessons in the science of proper selection, preparation, and hygiene of food." End quote. So, yeah, as you can see, in a short time, school lunches began to grow from charitable side projects into something of a big deal. Many schools began growing food gardens, although this was generally in more rural and southern schools, with their more available land and longer growing seasons. For between one and five cents, the average school child in a major American city in the late 19-teens and early 1920s could partake in meals like baked beans on a roll, vegetable soup, creamed beef on toast with roll, macaroni with tomato sauce and roll, or creamed salmon and roll. They must have really gotten a deal on those rolls. Anyway, the students needed a place to eat all of these meals, rolls included. The concept of a cafeteria had arisen in the industrial workplace back in the 1800s, but now schools are beginning to incorporate them as well along with their factory production line model of meal preparation, delivery, and disposal. What did these new school cafeteria lunches look like in action? Here's a passage describing a typical meal service in the New York City schools in the late 19-teens. Quote, At 11.45 in each of the 17 schools, squads of picked pupils set up the portable tables in preparation for serving the lunch. The children come out from their classrooms, form lines, usually in the interior play yards, and as they pass a given point, take up a tray, spoon, and whatever other utensils are necessary. The line goes by the large containers of soup, which is dispensed in half-pint portions to the children. The rule has been to have each child purchase first a half-pint bowl of soup, after which he may purchase any of the other items prepared that day. After buying the soup, the child passes along the table on which the other foods are displayed, choosing those which appeal to him. Behind these tables, the picked pupils, in white gloves and aprons, and in the case of the girls, caps, hand to the children the desired articles. At the end of the line, the associate manager stands to receive as many pennies as there are items of food on each child's tray. The child carries his lunch to one of the tables which have been set for that purpose, where the food is eaten. After finishing the meal, the child takes the tray and oiled the dishes to a designated place, where any remaining food is scraped into a pail, and the bowls, trays, and utensils are neatly placed in piles ready to be washed. This affords an opportunity for a lesson in practical domestic science. If the noon meal is served at home, it may be somewhat more elaborate. When he has to hurry back to school, this fact must be taken into account, and no extra tax put on his digestive powers." Unquote. 
it is kind of astonishing to see how much of the architecture for the contemporary school cafeteria was already in place within the first decade that school lunch became an institution. You'll notice, though, that the people serving the food here are other students, not professional cafeteria staff. And this is still how school meals are served in elementary schools in Japan. But we'll get to why and when that changes in the United States in just a moment. By 1920, the growing volume, complexity, and social reform agendas of lunch programs necessitated that the Department of Education in New York step in, as had been the case in Boston, to manage it all. It had all just gotten that big that quickly. As food prices began rising in the 1920s, that sheer volume, 600,000 lunches a year in New York City alone, began to outstrip the resources of even the largest charitable organizations, leading some municipalities, New York included, to start using tax dollars to supplement those efforts. School lunch programs generally enjoyed a great deal of popular support. To a point, anyway. As the Great Depression began to take hold in the 1930s, the rising numbers of the rural poor finally overwhelmed the systems in place for school lunch production and delivery. Local organizations and governments turned to state authorities, who eventually turned to the federal government, among President Franklin Roosevelt's various New Deal programs were massive subsidies to support school lunch programs, which actually served a triple purpose. Not only did they provide for undernourished children, but also set up a guaranteed buyer for farmers who actually had food surpluses that were sitting and rotting because of price collapses or because no one could afford to buy them. And finally, the transportation, preparation, and serving of all those lunches created jobs for thousands of women the now quintessential lunch ladies. By 1941, federally supported school meal programs existed in all states, plus Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, with almost 65,000 employees serving over 2 million lunches a day. When the United States entered the Second World War, the newly created War Food Administration provided additional funding for school lunches with the very open agenda that boys needed to eat well in order to grow to be ready to go off and fight overseas. Even once both the war and the depression ended, school lunches had become such a fixture, and farmers had become so accustomed to a steady source of government purchasing for their crops, that Congress easily passed and President Truman signed into law the Richard B. Russell National School Lunch Act, which created and still funds the National School Lunch Program, or NSLP. Georgia Senator and former Governor Richard Russell's sponsorship of the bill proves, I suppose, that there is some positive thing I can say about the man's otherwise ghastly political record. He co-authored the infamous Southern Manifesto in 1956, opposing all attempts to end racial segregation, and led a Southern boycott of the 1964 Democratic National Convention in protest over the signing of the Civil Rights Act, bemoaning about how the bill would, quote, intermingle races, unquote. Russell was also a huge supporter of anti-communist witch hunts, as well as a supporter of limited federal government. But Russell could reconcile a giant federal spending program with the fact that it stood to massively benefit the coffers of Southern farmers. The bill went on to expand school lunch to over 7.1 million children, and eventually to 18.9 million children within the next 20 years as Presidents Eisenhower and Nixon both expanded the program further. There was always a tension, however, between the programs catering to the health priorities of children versus the economic priorities of farmers and big agribusiness, as expressed through their lobbying and influence of the United States Department of Agriculture, or USDA. 
One of the many ways this can manifest is through the promotion of certain foods, like dairy products or corn. Even though the last few decades of research into the consumption of dairy and corn have called into question health benefits for children, those specific industries remain recipients of earmarked funds. As early as 1977, the General Accounting Office, the auditing arm of Congress, raised concerns that too many school meals were not meeting the nutritional needs of students, that, quote, the meals generally fell far short of providing minimum nutritional standards and were higher in fat content than recommended by nutritionists. The investigation, based on independent laboratory analysis of school lunches, also revealed that some of the meals did not meet food processors' claims for vitamin content, unquote. Another challenge here is that the National Lunch Program and its later companion, the 1966 Child Nutrition Act, signed by President Johnson, that added federal funding for school breakfasts, doesn't actually reach all children in the United States, because the National Lunch Program isn't a mandate and never has been. It's a resource. Local school districts still have to agree to take part, and not all do, as bemoaned by a 1970s Harvard University Department of Nutrition report quoted in the Washington Post. Quote, the school lunch program, which has been in existence for almost 25 years, is an important piece of social legislation, yet it still reaches less than half of all U.S. children and an even smaller number of children from poor families. Washington can't make sure that every needy child gets help unless state and local governments are interested and willing to lend a hand. Many cities and towns have not joined the National School Lunch Program. End quote. Why would any school not want to get reimbursed for lunches? Well, as one possible reason, the NSLP has all kinds of guidelines around both pricing and nutritional content that not every district wants to deal with. Even more troubling, speaking of nutritional content, is that 1977 GAO audit also found that large numbers of students who were receiving lunches weren't actually eating them. The healthier the food, it seemed, the less of it that many students actually ate. By some estimates, so-called plate waste could equal as much as 15% of meals served. It was this idea of waste that President Ronald Reagan railed against in 1981. In accordance with his administration's mission to reduce government spending, President Reagan slashed federal school lunch spending by over 25%. In response, schools around the nation wound up reducing school lunch portions and also upping the price that students needed to pay in order to receive them. Reagan's USDA also changed eligibility guidelines, reducing the number of poor children eligible for free or reduced-price lunch. When schools desperate for advice on how to meet the still-existing nutritional guidelines and do these cutbacks approached the FDA, they were provided with suggestions like giving half a slice of bread to kindergartners along with four ounces of milk, one ounce of meat, and a half cup of vegetables. And in a now infamous statement, suggestions for what could count as vegetables included relish and, yes, ketchup. No, President Reagan himself never directly said ketchup is a vegetable, but somehow that quotation became indelibly associated with his presidency as did his aide, James Johnson's, feeble attempt to walk back the advice by saying, quote, it would be a mistake to say that ketchup per se was classified as a vegetable. Ketchup in combination with other things was classified as a vegetable, unquote. When asked what other things, Johnson replied, quote, French fries or hamburgers, unquote. The thing is, French fries and hamburgers did actually become the next wave of school lunches, Although some of those Reagan budget cuts were restored, with so much of that federal reimbursement gone, 
schools began cutting costs in all kinds of ways around the lunchroom, particularly through incorporating processed foods that packed tons of calories into cheap, easy-to-serve fashion, or by privatizing or contracting out their cafeteria operations to large companies whose economies of scale could help them keep costs low. And one of the ways they did that was by providing lower-quality, fast-food-style meals. Indeed, some of these providers literally were fast-food restaurants like McDonald's, Burger King, Papa John's, and Chick-fil-A. Prepackaged foods provided under the label of snacks could slip through loopholes in nutritional guidelines and provide profitable, low-labor-to-serve and, unfortunately, low-nutrition items. While plate waste did go down, the fact that kids were gobbling up these meals wasn't necessarily the best of things. The 1980s and 90s saw an almost threefold jump in the number of overweight teenagers in the United States. And while school lunch certainly wasn't the sole culprit, it also couldn't have helped that, in the words of a 2002 Time Magazine article, quote, some school cafeterias look little different from food courts at the local mall. Many serve burgers and pizzas rife with full-fat meats and cheeses, or simply turn the prep work over to fast food franchises which have a burgeoning side business in catering school meals, unquote. Kelly Brownwell, director of Yale University's Center for Eating and Weight Disorders, put it a little more starkly. The school cafeteria, she said, is a toxic food environment, end quote. An exaggeration? Not always. Several high-profile cases of food poisoning made national news during the 90s and 2000s, including a New Orleans school where over 100 students and teachers fell ill with bacterial poisoning from poorly handled meat. While the USDA technically was still supposed to be enforcing standards for both nutrition and safety, the responsibility was confusingly split across three separate agencies, and response to even massive incidents, like one where listeria-tainted meat wound up in schools in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, was shockingly slow. In that case, officials took five days to even inform the schools that the recall was necessary. The 2000s, as a result, saw something of an upsurge in healthy cafeteria food activism, and school districts affluent enough to afford healthier, even organic food options began doing so. Then in 2010, President Obama signed the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, which provided $4.5 billion in new school nutrition spending. Among other things, this increased the number of eligible children for free meals by over 110,000, and for the first time in 30 years, let the USDA set new, stricter national standards, including minimum amounts of fruit, vegetables and whole grains, and caps on sodium, sugar, and fat, and these standards were even applied to school vending machines. The Act called for triannual audits and streamlined recall procedures, as well as gave access to nutritional facts about meals to parents and communities. First Lady Michelle Obama became the public face of this new nutritional program, spearheading with a public health campaign she called Let's Move. Even though 2010 had already begun the era of hyperpartisan political divisions in America, the act passed unanimously in the Senate, and with at least some bipartisan support in the House, where 17 out of 170 Republicans voted for the democratically sponsored bill. But that coalition began to break down as food companies started chafing at all of those new restrictions and guidelines. Producers of starchy, high-fat, and high-sugar processed foods, who had enjoyed a boon from the school cafeteria market during the 1990s and 2000s, were increasingly unhappy. The American Frozen Food Institute was one of the chief lobbying groups opposing the new regulations, as were the potato industry, fearing for the loss of the now ubiquitous cafeteria french fries, and the tomato industry, 
Yes, the even more ubiquitous school lunch pizza had previously counted for servings of grains, protein, and vegetables. But the new regulations called all appropriate BS on that, mobilizing the frozen pizza juggernaut Schwann Food Company against the new law. Multi-million dollar lobbying efforts were aimed at the Republicans who took control of Congress in 2014 to do something about this law. And many of those politicians found political traction by framing the conflict as one of a liberal government nanny state attempting to limit families' freedom to make their own decisions about what their children should eat. Former Alaska governor and vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin famously brought 200 sugar cookies to a Pennsylvania school fundraiser as a public act of protest against what she characterized as Michelle Obama's war on sweets. Among Palin's statements were, quote, you should be making these decisions about what you can eat at school. Should it be the government or should it be the parents? End quote. In a way, Palin's rhetoric here calls back some of the original motivation behind school lunch programs that school lunch programs serve more than food. They serve certain cultural values as well. What one group classifies as just a matter of good nutrition, another group may associate with core aspects of identity and self-determination. Unlike the case in the early 20th century, this time around, there was the internet and social media. Although it's hard to tell how many of these efforts were genuinely student-inspired and how much were spurred on by so-called astroturf groups professional political organizations masquerading as grassroots youth movements. Nevertheless, social media campaigns went viral, with students protesting the healthier foods in their cafeteria. They would post photos of themselves making upset faces over their meals with hashtags like Thanks Michelle Obama and Brown Bagging It. In Wisconsin and New Jersey, students staged lunchroom strikes, and a video made by students at Wallace County High School in Kansas called We Are Hungry set to the tune of Fun's We Are Young, spread over one and a half million times across YouTube. It was later revealed that their English teacher actually wrote the lyrics. So how widespread was this youth rebellion against leafy green veggies? A nationally representative study conducted by researchers at the University of Washington School of Public Health, published last year, found some evidence that from 2007 to 2017, students participating in the National Lunch Program saw, quote, significant increases in consuming dark green vegetables, beans, peas, and whole grains, and decreases in consuming refined grains, unquote. But the authors admit that it was difficult to use a food metaphor to compare apples to apples, given the varying levels of compliance with the national food standards from school to school and challenges in students' self-reporting of what they ate. Overall, participation in the free lunch program for students from low-income families actually increased under the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. But many more affluent districts began foregoing participation in the national school lunch program. Remember, schools can do that in exchange for more autonomy. Even some less wealthy districts did the math and realized they could make more money from selling processed snacks than by adhering to the higher standard foods that many kids just weren't purchasing. By the end of 2010, participation in the program had dropped overall by about a million students, for the first time in over two decades. Then, a huge battle erupted in 2013 about the distinctions between double-counting food as both a la carte and as part of a reimbursable lunch. Cafeteria employees who found the regulations too confusing or restrictive found allies within the Republican Party and the big agribusiness industry, and together used it as a wedge issue no pizza pun intended, to attack the entire law. 
pitting themselves against the American Medical Association, the Children's Defense Fund, and a variety of environmental groups and food advocacy organizations. It was, to put it mildly, a massive food fight. And that fight only continued into the Trump administration. In 2018, President Trump's Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, no, no relation to the chicken producer, I checked, introduced new rules that rolled back limits on sodium, allowed the selling of flavored milks, and did away with much of the standards around whole grains in school lunches. Purdue framed it as both a way to ease financial burdens on schools and also as an issue of local freedom and control, citing anecdotes of southern schools unable to serve the kind of grits that students preferred because of the whole grain requirements. Quote, if kids are not eating what is being served, they are not benefiting and food is being wasted. Unquote. The USDA reported the development under the headline, No Joke, Secretary Purdue Moves to Make School Meals Great Again. Then, in January of 2020, Trump's USDA rolled out additional changes, this time reducing the servings of vegetables students were to be served each week, again using the rhetoric of freedom and local choice. However, that April, a federal judge struck down all of these reforms for violating the Administrative Procedure Act. Basically, they were inconsistent with different USDA reforms the administration had proposed back in 2017, and the judge ruled that the public had not been given sufficient notice or time to comment. Then the COVID-19 pandemic hit in March and April of 2020, and it forced the closure of schools across the country, along with their cafeterias, whatever it was they were serving in them. Remember those 30 million students who eat school lunch every day? Well, 22 million of them are on free and reduced price lunch, which means they rely on those meals for daily nutrition. Under these extraordinary circumstances, the USDA was able to make temporary changes to waive certain requirements, like the one stating that meals must be served in a group setting in order to qualify for reimbursement, or the standards around when meals are served. This all allowed families to pick up breakfast and lunch at the same time if need be, or for school personnel to deliver meals to students' homes. The Families First Coronavirus Response Act of 2020 also authorized states to administer payment of Pandemic Electronic Benefit Transfer, PEBT, food benefits to households with children who would have received free school lunches if the schools had been open, and President Biden has since expanded upon those provisions. All of this highlights how school lunch, begun as a scattershot series of charitable supplements, has in the space of the last century grown into such a vital health and economic resource for many American families. As school cafeterias gear up to reopen at full capacity this September, just this month, California announced that all 6.2 million students in the state will have the option to eat lunch for free, regardless of family income, something that several major cities like New York, Boston, and Chicago already do, but this is the first time an entire state has taken that step, and the state of Maine followed shortly after. In the world of public education, where everything seems to be the subject of some kind of controversy or disagreement, in some ways school lunch is a no-brainer. A wealth of research has linked increased food security to school meal programs in that they ease pressure on a family's limited food supply so that everyone can wind up getting more to eat, as well as school attendance, especially for boys, and educational attainment. But at the same time, as we've seen, even school lunch isn't exempt from the larger culture wars, even if those culture wars here, as they so often do, only serve to mask competing economic interests. It's also important to note that most of the research around school lunch and academic outcomes is about access to meals, period, not the specific content of those meals. 
However, there was a large California Department of Education study in 2008 and 9, and then again in 2012 and 13, of 9,700 elementary, middle, and high school students, which found that contracting with a healthy meal vendor correlated with increased student standardized test performance by somewhere around 0.03 and 0.04 standard deviations. That is statistically significant. Not huge, but it's something. What's more, in a 2017 article in The Atlantic, education journalist Melinda Anderson makes the argument that these benefits essentially come for free, well, federally reimbursed anyway, for schools, as opposed to, say, hiring teachers or investing in extra programs that would have to be funded at the local level in order to raise those test scores. The money saved here may well counterbalance the money that schools may seek to save through the use of cheaper processed foods in the cafeteria. As for convincing kids themselves to eat healthier when that food is placed in front of them, well, as a parent, I can identify with that struggle. But I want my kids to have access to that food at school, and ideally, that and nothing else. I'm privileged enough to be able to purchase and prepare healthy meals for my kiddos when I send them off to school, but it's hard to get them to eat it when they know that Wednesday is pizza day at the school cafeteria. As is often the case when we bandy around terms like choice, some choices are only possible if other choices get restricted, and I recognize that complexity. Finally, I want to give a shout out to fellow Massachusetts native Jarrett Krasowska and his Lunch Lady book series for young readers. They're not only fun books in their own right that encourage habits of reading, but they celebrate the hard and too often thankless or even maligned work of the tens of thousands of lunch ladies across our nation's schools. A professor of mine in graduate school once talked about the socio-professional hierarchy inside of school buildings in the following terms. The principal is doctor someone. The teacher is Mr. or Mrs. someone. The custodian is Bob. And then there are the lunch ladies. The school lunch program and all of the millions of kids and families it serves wouldn't be possible without these real women, and some men, who make it happen. Remember, that's how school lunches began way back when, with groups of women organizing to create a system that supported those in need. It's the worst of insults to render those women nameless. And so, hi Grace, my favorite lunch lady at the last school where I worked. This episode has been for you. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.